Uh, good morning, all of you who are watching from at home or listening uh, via podcast. My name is Tommy Moore. I'm on staff here at Mercy House, and uh, I'm really excited to be continuing on with you in the book of Philippians this week. Um, so if you're just joining us for the first time, we definitely want to welcome you. You can catch up on everything that we've done so far if you go to our website, uh, website at mercyhouse365.org. Um, all of these are recorded in video, so you can relive all of our sermons uh, and services, including the worship. Um, you can also just listen to the preaching portion on our podcast. So uh, you just type in Mercy House into iTunes, or Stitcher Radio or Pod, Google Pod, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, we're on there. So um, be sure to do that if you miss some of the sermons. Uh, let me give you a quick recap on what's been happening in Philippians uh, so far. There's definitely, obviously, a lot that's going on because we're, we spent nine weeks so far in Philippians and we are just past the halfway mark today. Um, so there's a lot that's going on and really here's the TLDR, the too long, don't read uh, version of, of, of what you need to know as we're diving in this morning. So this is a letter from Paul uh, to the church that he planted in Philippi. Uh, and, and what Paul is doing is he's pastoring and, and making disciples and he's doing it remotely, uh, which is not unlike what we're trying to do now, which answers the question, can, can you make disciples remotely? Can you be uh, kind of fruitful remotely? I think the answer is yes. I mean, we're seeing Paul do this as he's writing letters, not able to see his church face to face. Um, he didn't have a, a video camera. He wasn't able to live stream. He's writing letters and discipling his church remotely. Um, and, and the last thing I think that, that I, I want to bring to note is that Paul's tone with the Philippians is it's kind of unbridled to, to say the least. And, and this really has to do with, with the Philippians themselves. The Philippians are really listening to Paul. He, they're heeding his exhortations, and, and in this, they're, they're following Jesus really faithfully. They're living out these transformed lives, and they're remaining uh, faithful and obedient to God. And, and through this, they're really maturing as believers. Um, and so what you see is, is not Paul necessarily spending time establishing his credibility or his authority to the church. He's not spending time just on the spiritual milk that newer and younger believers need, but he, he's actually dishing out uh, spiritual entrees of meat and potatoes uh, to really drive the Philippians to that next level of spiritual maturity. And so all this to say, uh, the things that Paul is calling the Philippians to here are, are definitely challenging. You're, you're seeing this each week and even on the Wednesday night calls when we're able to connect with one another and really talk about how to apply these truths to our lives. We're seeing that some of these things are held in tension. It's really difficult to process through them. But Paul is inviting the Philippians and us as we read this to really see under the hood of, of what the life, the heart, the mind of a mature follower of Jesus looks like. And so Paul opens up the section that we're reading this morning with, with a vivid, graphic warning to the Philippians. He, he says in chapter 3, verse 2, and if you have the Bible app, again, we're, we're on there, and you can see all of the scripture references that I'm going to be bringing up uh, on there, and you can also take notes in there as well. He says in chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for those evildoers, look out Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Those are some pretty serious words. Paul is really harping on this. Uh, he, he's using this phrase, look out, three times, uh, along with three different descriptions of one type of person, which communicates the, the severity of this warning that Paul is giving to the Philippians. And the, the descriptions that he's using are, are each growing in intensity, which it communicates Paul's pure disdain for the people that he's warning the Philippians to look out for. 
So who are these people and what is the big deal? Who are these dogs, these workers of evil, these mutilators of the flesh? And Paul here is calling out false teachers, but specifically he's calling out the Judaizers uh, who, who have this twisted theology and, and who are distorting the gospel to those around them. Um, Judaizers, they accept Jesus as the Messiah, but at the same time, they believe that, that you needed to be Jewish and adhere to all of the Jewish customs and traditions in order to be saved and have a relationship with God. One place you see Paul actually uh, confronting some Judaizers is in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. And this says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And I love this next part. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, translation, there was a big heated argument there, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about the question. The Judaizers were teaching that in order to be saved, you needed to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. And these false teachers were believing and preaching a false gospel of Jesus plus. Jesus plus the law is what saves you, which is absolutely absurd because not only is it wrong, what it does is it undermines the work of Christ on the cross. That's why it's such a big deal. It's saying that, that what God did by becoming a man, by living a perfect sinless life, by willingly giving his life, by dying a gruesome death that we deserved in order that he might purchase right standing for us before God, that all wasn't quite enough. It's saying, yes, Jesus was God. Yes, he's, he's the prophesied Messiah, but he needs our help to kind of cross the finish line. When Paul says, look out for the dogs, he, he's not talking about his homies. And look, I, I love dogs just as much as the next guy, uh, but in first century Palestine, dogs weren't paraded around in little baby carriages. There, there was no best in show. Dogs were flea-infested, carrying disease, and were just generally hostile and dangerous to everyone who went near them. And so that's the weight which Paul uses in this word as, as he uses it to describe the Judaizers. It's important to note um, that, that the Jews would often refer to Gentiles, those outside of God's covenant, with the same term, calling them dogs. And so there is some irony here as, as he flips that on its head. Um, and he calls these Judaizers who think that they're inside God's covenant to communicate that they're in fact the dogs that are outside of God's covenant. And this is all based on their blasphemous teachings. And the Judaizers, uh, with their pride in believing that what they can achieve um, themselves in, in bringing salvation to themselves, it really strikes a deep chord inside Paul. And, and we're going to see why as we continue on in this passage. And Paul puts up with a lot of very different and very difficult opponents in ministry. But none draw the same passion and fury from Paul as the Judaizers. And Paul runs into these Judaizers undermining the gospel in Galatia, another church that he plants. And his intensity toward them is no different. In Galatians 5.12, we see, um, and this is after a long discourse about these Judaizers, he, sa he says, I wish those who unsettle you, and he's referring to those Judaizers who are giving them trouble, uh, giving the church trouble for not being circumcised. He's saying, I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Yes, you, you heard it right. 
What, what he's saying is that if you think that righteousness comes from circumcising a little piece of your flesh, why don't you go the whole way, like the pagan priests of that time who fully castrated themselves as an act of spiritual enlightenment? The false teaching strikes a deep chord in Paul, and he, he doesn't hold back when he's confronting them in their false teaching, and he calls it out. So what can we take away from this? Well, I think one of the things that we can take away from it is that legalism, that is, believing that obeying laws and rules as a method to earn salvation is incredibly offensive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Incredibly offensive. Why? That's a great question. Let's, let's read on because I think Paul makes it very clear. Philippians 3, verse 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. By Paul saying we are the circumcision, Paul is pointing out that circumcision was a mark of a covenant that was given to Israel in the Old Testament that would be later fulfilled in the new covenant in Christ. And so the symbolism of circumcision communicated that Israel would be marked in their flesh as God's people, but, but the act pointed to one day being marked in their hearts by the Holy Spirit through salvation. So where circumcision, circumcision of the flesh was a transformation of the flesh, the work of Christ through the Holy Spirit in us is a deep transformation of the heart. A level of healing and restoration that, that no man, no process, no rule, no law, no knife would, it, would be able to accomplish except through the supernatural intervention of God himself. And that's what Paul means when, when he says, for we are the circumcision. The, the fulfillment of God's promise is seen and is realized in the transformation of our hearts through the Holy Spirit in salvation. So it's not an external thing that we do, it's an internal miracle that happens to us. We did a whole sermon series called Path to Paradise on covenantal theology, and that's all on our website and on the podcast. So if you want to hear more about this, uh, feel free to, to look into that, and we'll post that link in our chat as well. While this process of salvation uh, is happening internally. Paul does point to three ways that this internal circumcision of our hearts manifests themselves externally. Uh, and these stand in stark contrast to those who believe and preach these false gospels. Paul says that those who are truly transformed on a heart level through salvation in Jesus uh, do three things very differently from those who are not transformed. Uh, they, they, they worship um, and serve by the Spirit of God. They, they glory or they, they boast is another way of looking at that in Christ Jesus, and they put no confidence in the flesh. Uh, this summer I got to lead a, a small group along with Patrick Grafton Cardwell through a book called Dad Tired with a group full of tired dads. Uh, and it was great. Uh, the, the book talked about what it looked like to be uh, just intentional and in, in being fruitful dads and husbands and how to spiritually lead uh, our families. And it brought a, a lot of really good questions uh, to light and, and drew a lot of really helpful conversations uh, for all of us dads. I think one of the chapters that really stuck out to me, uh, it posed a really simple question. It asked, what are you trying to accomplish as you disciple your children? What are you trying to accomplish as you disciple 
your children. In other words, what is the end goal that you're striving for as you lead your children each and every day? What do you envision success looking like as you try to raise your children? And I think we were all like, dang, uh, that's a really good question. Oftentimes, personally, I'm just kind of struggling to get through a single day. And one of the dads joked, he, I think he half joked, that success would look like uh, making sure that their kids stayed alive as best as he could. Now this question was really profound, but what was even more so was the follow-up question to that. What are you doing now in order to get to that end goal? The chapter ended with not just us thinking about our kids or our spouses, but actually assessing ourselves. What was our end goal for our own lives? What, what was our vision for our spouse, ourselves spiritually 20, 30, 40 years down the road? And really got me thinking about a question I think we all wrestle with, whether we're Christians or not, which is, what are we living for? Well, what is the ultimate trajectory of our lives leading toward? I think that this question is at the heart of the transformation process uh, when we receive God's grace and experience salvation, what we live for, what our end goal is, it, it begins to change radically. And look at what Paul is saying. Um, he, he's saying those who have experienced salvation in Christ, they, they worship God, they boast in God, and they put their confidence in God, which is a stark contrast to the Judaizers. I mean, think about it. Maybe it's helpful if we work backwards. So starting with confidence. Their, their confidence is figuratively and literally in their flesh. Their hope and basis of faith is resting in their ability to follow the law and a piece of skin that was nicked off of their bodies as a child. And so they boast not in Christ, but themselves, in their own ability to attain salvation through obedience and good works. And in all of this, putting confidence in what they can do, boasting in what they can do, it's not really about God at all. It, it, it's all about them. They're worshiping, they're worshiping not God, they're worshiping themselves, and they're serving themselves in all that they do. But when true conversion happens, our, our deepest self-seeking, self-worshiping motivations and desires shift away from us, and, and they begin aiming at God. And this is not without struggle or temptation to turn back to what we had uh, known previously and, and quite possibly not without an entire lifetime of wrestling with this very idea. I mean, even in this next section, you see Paul saying, I haven't perfected this. Okay, this is something that's, that's ongoing. But that's what salvation is. It's, it's a surrender to self and it's a worshiping of God. And so if you're listening right now, I think these are some key diagnostic questions, whether you're a Christian or you're not, uh, that, that can really help determine what the trajectory and end goal of your life is right now, what, what everything is aiming toward. I think you can answer that by answering these three questions. One, uh, what are you worshiping and what are you serving? So that's one, what are you worshiping and serving? Two, what are you boasting about? And three, what is your confidence in? And these questions are in the Bible app, so you don't have to jot these down too quickly. We'll talk about these. For the, for the Judaizers, uh, their context and their culture of religious legalism informed what they lived for. And this paradigm or this construct that they lived inside determined what they worshipped and what they boasted in and what their confidence would be built on. And I think this is why Paul rails against it so hard because this was also exactly the, con uh, the, the context and the construct that Paul himself grew up in. 
and what he bought into with his entire life. Look at what he says, starting in verse 3 again. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul isn't railing against legalism as someone who failed it. <laughs> He's railing against legalism as, as the person who was the poster child for what the Judaizers were advocating for. And Paul is legitimately flexing here. He's saying, listen, if anyone wants to go toe-to-toe to see who's a better Jew, I'm going to knock you out in the first round. He goes down his resume, and it starts like this. He, he talks about being circumcised on the eighth day, which, which was the Jewish custom. That's how it had to start. If you were to have a, an impeccable resume, that's where it needs to start. And really, that's outside of your control, but he, he still flexes that. He, he talks about how he can trace back his lineage to the tribe of Benjamin as a true Jew. Not all Jews could do that back then. He considers himself a true, a true purebred Hebrew, which was also held in contention. Um, he, he, he trained as a Pharisee, the, the most strict traditional Jewish community that, that was seen as really the most holy and the most sanctified of all the Jews. And in terms of passion and zeal, whether or not he was uh, into this with his heart, he persecuted and oversaw the execution of Christians in the early church as they were seen as offensive enemies to the Jews. And to top all of that off, he followed the law. And we're not just talking about the Ten Commandments. We're talking about all of Moses' laws, which add up to 613 different laws. I, I made it through about 40 of them uh, personally. He followed all of those uh, blamelessly, meaning no one could ever call him out for murdering someone. Uh, no one could call him out for disrespecting his parents. No one could call him out for lying. No one could call him out for missing a single Jewish holiday or festival. Or no one could call him out for offering up a sacrifice with, without first salting it, which is literally one of the 613 laws, Leviticus 2, verse 13, if you want to look that up. What he's saying is that if it's about having confidence in what I've done, or what I've accomplished, I have more reasons than most people to have confidence. But look at what he says next, Philippians 3, 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. When Paul considers his resume, when he lists out every single accolade and accomplishment that he's attained in his life, when he counts up those hours of study, of strict, uh, that, that strict religious lifestyle that he lived, his following of the law to a T, when he lays all of that out in all of its glory, a resume that made him a rock star in the context and the construct that he lived in, and he weighs all of that in comparison to the worth of knowing Christ and having a personal relationship with God, he counted his entire resume as loss, as rubbish, more literally human excrement. The word he uses here is actually most accurately comparable to the crassness of the word crap. 
This is Paul's testimony of salvation and conversion. And it's a radical one. Born and raised to invest everything he had into building his confidence in himself through his religious legalism, spending years boasting in his self-righteousness and ultimately worshiping himself and his own awesomeness until he met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and his world was completely turned upside down. And for Paul, this construct for how to derive value and meaning out of life was through religious progress. His end goal was to rise those ranks and, and that path was really clear for him. And each step in that path, in that progression, was gain for him. And for us, I doubt it's exactly the same, but we live by various worldly constructs that promise gain, promise worth, promise meaning and value, which ultimately enslave us to progress further and further in that never-ending pursuit, just like Paul's construct did. And so my question for you this morning is, what are you trying to accomplish with your life? What are we trying to accomplish with our life? What construct are we participating in? What, what do we count as gain? And what are we treasuring? Because everyone is operating under a structure of belief that drives and motivates our decisions and our actions. We're all seeking to maximize our gain. And so the challenge here is being honest enough with ourselves to acknowledge what that is. I think the most obvious one that comes to mind as we're living in the five college area for the, uh, our family's been living here for the past 12 years, uh, is academia and, and the pursuit of knowledge and intellectual enlightenment. As an undergraduate pursuing good grades and internships to postgraduate work, chasing um, degrees and publications, this, this promise of gain um, and the temptation to worship, to boast in, and to find confidence in academic success can be a life-consuming endeavor that, that just never ends. Maybe it's not academia. Maybe, it's, uh, the, maybe the construct that we're operating in is that of career advancement or success striving for positions and job titles, worshiping those who are already in those positions and, and clawing for ways to place our confidence in our success and in our profession. Maybe academia and success are actually just a means to accumulating wealth. The temptation to want to put confidence and find security in the size of our savings account or our investment portfolio, to, to boast, if not to others, then to ourselves of, of our own net worth and worshiping money above all else. Maybe the investment and gain is not monetary, but maybe it's gains in muscle mass or muscle definition. And our culture places tremendous emphasis right now and value on personal fitness and health, and encouraging us to put our confidence in our beauty or physical capabilities, to boast in our bodies, to worship those who exemplify the media's and our culture's definition of beauty. Maybe it's just chasing fun and leisure, worshiping comfort and convenience, idolizing downtime, me time, chasing hobbies and, and time with our toys, finding confidence and security in our paid time off, or just that annual vacation at the beach. <clears throat> Maybe we're in the same boat as the Judaizers. Maybe not advocating for circumcision with the same zeal, 
but putting our confidence in religious piety or, or acts of service to the church and others, striving for holiness just to feel better about ourselves, boasting in our hearts of all the good things we do and all the people we serve, reasoning that God is in our debt and owes us salvation. If we live in submission to any of these constructs or these worldviews, we will, we will make all of our decisions to increase the gain within that construct. And for Paul, this dictated the way he invested his time, his talent, his resources. It, it, it's no different for us. So whether, whatever our end goal is, we're going to make those investment decisions of our time, our talents, and our resources to ensure that we maximize the, game, the gain of what we're aiming for. But listen to Paul's testimony as a man who made it to the highest tier of his worldly value system. Philippians 3, 7 again, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Now, don't mistake this for saying that all things are bad and that there are no good things in the world. Every good and perfect gift is from God. This is less a, a statement about the intrinsic value of things around us and more about the, 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 the intrinsic value of Jesus himself. So it's like comparing $1,000 worth of Monopoly money, which has value when you're playing Monopoly, to the sum of all the gold in the U.S. Treasury. It's, it's incomparable in value because of the surpassing value of gold. So it is with Christ. You could put everything good in the world on one side of the scale, and you could put Jesus Christ on the other, and being able to have a relationship with God on the other side of that scale. And the scale would grow a mouth and laugh at you for trying to compare the two. There are absolutely good things and good endeavors. God gives us gifts and calls us to good works, but gifts are meant to bring glory to the giver, to bring about worship and praise to God. And good works are meant to make much of God and to bring glory to God. But the problem is, is that in our broken and our fleshy, sinful state, we stop short and end up worshiping and idolizing the gifts that we receive in and of themselves and use the works to make much of ourselves instead of God. And so the application of this text, it's not to tank your career or to clear out your bank account in fear of worshiping success or money. It's, it's not to cancel out your, your vacation or to never participate in church activities again because you're, you're afraid of worshiping rest on your vacation or being legalistic in your service or even your Bible reading. The application is to acknowledge and identify if we're worshiping or boasting or finding confidence in anything else other than Jesus, to confess that and submit that to God, and then to repent by worshiping, boasting in, and finding confidence in Jesus Christ. There's also going to be this ongoing tension and this wrestling to redirect our praise and worship away from the gifts that God has given us and the blessings that he's allowed us to experience and, and, and redirecting it back to him, not just on the gifts and the blessings themselves. And there's also the ongoing wrestling of leveraging our careers, our skills, everything we have toward the glory of God, not the glory of ourselves. 
one of the things I love about this passage so much is that Paul, Paul really isn't commanding the Philippians to do anything. There are no imperatives here except for to look out for the Judaizers. The, the, the passage here is a raw, genuine portion of Paul's uh, letter where he's just sharing his own personal testimony. He's sharing how he was freed from the construct that enslaved him since he was a child. And with this conversion came a freedom from that burden of needing to accomplish, of needing to achieve, of needing to gain value and prestige. And through his testimony, he tells us why. Because the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Not knowing about Christ Jesus, not knowing of Christ, but having an intimate and personal relationship with the God of the universe. Vacations, they come and they go, they end. Our bodies and our beauty, they fail us. Money and security are fleeting. Success is often just short-lived. And all of the other things that we can gain in this world are never truly satisfying, and they always end at our death. The worth of having a relationship with Christ surpassing, surpasses everything else uh, because it's what our souls were made for. And it brings us the deepest level of satisfaction and joy, and it extends forever into eternity. What else is there on earth that can offer that? Nothing. Not one thing, not a sum of a bunch of things. Nothing compares to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. And so this morning, there, there are two ways to respond. If you haven't experienced the value of having a relationship with God, you can do this by responding and re receiving this gift of grace and salvation. And know that this truth is what made Paul so passionate against the Judaizers. The, the, the gift of grace is free and salvation is in Christ alone. Not Christ and some good works, not Christ and keeping your nose clean, not anything except the work of Christ on the cross. If you want to know more about this, we have a website set up which answers a lot of questions and can walk you through the steps uh, that, that lead to you receiving Christ. It's on our website at mercyhouse365.org slash respond. And so we encourage you to do that. If you have further questions, you can look at that. And there's also a form at the bottom that you can fill out. Uh, and we'll get in contact with you. We'd love to chat with you and just hear where you're at as you're processing through all of this. And so another way to respond, if, if you've experienced the, the paradigm and construct shift of salvation, um, is, is to live by faith in the truth that Jesus Christ is worth more than anything and everything else. And that is a world-changing truth to live inside. The, the beauty is that there is immense freedom in this. Knowing that your value, your satisfaction, and your joy are not contingent upon worldly success or gain. So for those of us who are just entrenched in this construct, there's freedom in knowing that you don't have to worship it anymore. You don't have to be enslaved by it anymore. If, if you're crushed by this construct because you're failing at the world's, con uh, the world's standards of gain and value and prestige, if you're just not measuring up, then you can also experience the freedom of, 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 of not being under that burden. You can find your value, your satisfaction, your joy, your worth in what is truly worth living for in this life. So I want to take, uh, we're going to take some time now to, to just pray. Um, I also want to encourage you, just another plug for our Wednesday nights, because as this 
kind of opens up a lot of cans of worms. Wednesday night is a great place to come and to just talk with others about how this is impacting us and how we can truly live this out in our lives. And you're doing that with other uh, brothers and sisters who are wrestling with the same things. So there's no one sermon that's going to be the silver bullet that just, you know, you just listen to it and do it and then you're done. This is an ongoing process. So just a plug for that. Um, but first what we want to do is just engage God in prayer regarding these things. So I'm going to uh, ask Robert to come up and do that now. <laughs>